Want to patent your invention? The chance is near. You've given it heart. Now get it in gear. It's Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. This is Richard Gearhart and Elizabeth Gearhart on Passage to Profit. Welcome to our show. Passage to Profit is the show on iHeartRadio that speaks to entrepreneurs and those wanting to start their own business. Tonight, we have Peter Crisdale with us. Peter is an entrepreneur, an investor, and also head of the New York chapter of Startup Grind. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about Startup Grind. I'm happy to. I've been running Startup Grind, I think, for almost five years here in New York City. It's a global organization. When I started, it was relatively young. It's now in 400 cities around the world doing monthly events. The event across the world is exactly the same format. It's a fireside chat format, uh, which means that I'm hosting it here in New York, interviewing one guest every month. Likewise, everywhere around the world, um, different chapter directors such as myself are choosing different guests from their communities and asking them questions about how they created their businesses. I went to a Startup Grind event, and it was excellent. It was Thank Lisa you. Wang yeah, yeah, of SheWorks. And I think that your events aren't your typical meetup events because she revealed a little bit about herself, and she was very warm and kind to the audience, and she hung around and talked to people. And it, it just was a really good feeling, positive energy there. Our, we have a really strong team that helps run the events um, and has been doing it for a long time. And right from the get-go, we wanted to create an event that felt pretty different. We wanted to get a high caliber of guest, someone who had significant experience they could share, but we also wanted to attract a high-quality audience, uh, meaning people who uh, really had skin in the game, were willing to participate in the event, and who came not only to absorb content, but also share what they were working on, see how they could help other people. And I think that's translated over the last five years into a strong community of people who um, show up consistently, but we're also constantly attracting people who are new to the city or new to entrepreneurship. Um, and so we have a really interesting audience as well. I'd say 50% of the value we're providing is the actual content from our monthly guest, and the other 50% is just getting to meet and talk to the community. So if there's somebody out there who's thinking about attending a Startup Grind event, first-timer, yeah. what can they expect? It's a great question. We've been doing the same format for the last five years because we know it works really well and it's, uh, it's provided a lot of value. So from 6.30 to 7, um, you can show up, you can meet other people in the community, have some pizza, have some wine, have some beer from 7 to 8. There's a one-hour conversation. So uh, is yep. the pizza and beer free, or is that? Uh, it, it's included in the ticket price. We do charge to participate for you to come. Okay. Um, All right. Go yeah. on. And right. That, but it's not a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, I think, you're dealing with entrepreneurs, right? So yeah, they're um, part of how I think we are differentiating ourselves. Is there are a lot of free events. There are a lot of five-dollar events, um, and we wanted to establish a slightly higher price point, which is still very affordable, but says if you're gonna be here, we want you to actually be here and participate. We don't want you showing up for free food. Yeah. <laughs> that Happens. That's kind of what I was that getting happens. at, but yeah, that happens, so, definitely. So when we spoke on the phone yesterday, you said that you wanted to share your story. Now, you said you were invited to be the New York City chapter head because of all the That's work right. you'd been doing. So you wanted to share your story from the very beginning. So <laughs> it's a fascinating story. I appreciate that. There's a lot to tell. I ended up in New York City about eight years ago, and we can go back to how I ended up here. But 
I found a passion for entrepreneurship. I ended up here because I found a, a small digital magazine that was operating here in New York City. This is a different story we didn't talk about, but also a great one. I came here as an intern to this company. When I arrived in New York City, I discovered that the company was only two other people besides me. <laughs> Um, and one of them uh, was a summer intern, so she was leaving. <laughs> um, and so I had looked at the website and how I kind of how I won this internship for myself was um, basically saying, here are all the things I think you could do differently. Here's what I think you could improve. I, I didn't know anything about web development at the time, but I knew from the consumer perspective that the login should be much cleaner, that you know I've had all these better experiences in other places on the web. Um, and so why don't you try to integrate that into what you're doing? And so I think it was about three weeks into my internship, the woman who had created the company asked me to be the CEO of the company. <laughs> wow, that's a uh, quick this promotion. Is, this yeah. is my first entrepreneurial experience. Um, and so, you know, it, it was a small company. She had created a huge, and I'm, I'm not going to mention the name of the company, but um She'd created a huge wealth of content because she was a great editor. She liked writing stories, but she didn't know how to monetize it. Mm -hmm. And she saw in me someone who had a lot of passion and might be able to solve this problem. How do you actually monetize all this content that you built? And so quickly I ended up in this position of figuring out in 2011 how to monetize content on the internet. Wow. Which all you know, the, which was a big fundamental question of entrepreneurship at the time. Um, and so, actually, I went from being a bartender in Pittsburgh <laughs> to, to being the CEO of a media company in New York City wow. <laughs> in the space of and four weeks. And they're not weeks. entirely unrelated, by the way. <laughs> so, um, but 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 taking a quick step back, I think this is so much of what entrepreneurship is: is trying to put yourself in a position where you can just optimize your situation whatever it is. And so much of how I've ended up where I am is because I showed up because I went to an extra event because I introduced myself to someone who I, you know, I, I could have just gone home and watched Netflix, but I went out to that thing. I introduced myself to a person that led me to meeting someone else that led me to meeting someone else. And that's effectively how I ended up doing Startup Grind because I had this passion for entrepreneurship. I started a meetup on meetup.com for other entrepreneurs and naturally started to attract an audience of entrepreneurs to the point where the Startup Grind organization identified me as someone that could be a good chapter director for what they were building. Um, and they reached out to me. There's, you know, it's, it's more complicated. There are some other mechanics in there. Um, but essentially, they identified me. We chatted for a few months, and I ultimately became the chapter director here. And now I've been doing it for five years. Congratulations. That's <laughs> incredible. And I would just say that your story here, I think, really points out an important part about being an entrepreneur, and that's networking. So most entrepreneurs, or many entrepreneurs, especially when they're starting out, need to go out and meet other entrepreneurs. People nowadays use social media, and I think some people feel like they can use social media to reach out instead of person-to-person -person networking. Yeah. And I think you need a mix of both, right? Yeah. I will say, if I don't know you and you connect with me on LinkedIn, I will not connect with you. I do try to maintain my social networks digitally as 
a group of people that I know and I want to share my updates with. And different people treat social networks differently. Some people might be far more receptive to just connecting via social media. But it's got to start from a place of wanting to help and wanting to participate. The worst thing you can do is go to a meetup, hand out a bunch of business cards, give people like a 10-second pitch, and then walk to the next group. One, one of the best things you can do in a networking event is spend the entire event getting to know one person and making sure that that person is someone that you maintain as part of your network in the future. So find someone you find really interesting, get to know them, keep in touch with them over a longer period of time. Make sure you chat with them every three months or so after that. That's well, that, great advice. That sounds great, Peter. And you're listening to Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gerhart. And our special guest this evening is Peter Crisdale. We'll be back in just a minute. There's never been a better time to start your own business. The opportunities are infinite and only limited by your imagination and enthusiasm. At Gerhart Law, we believe the most successful companies all have one thing in common. They start with a solid foundation first. Gearheart Law has years of experience protecting entrepreneurs, ideas, and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at www.gearheartlaw.com. Our professionals will create a custom strategy designed to fit your needs and your budget. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection, licensed, and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Visit GearHeartLaw.com. Together, we can change the world. Visit G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Passage to Profit continues with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. And our special guest this evening, Peter Crisdale. Peter, we were talking about giving forward and you're doing that now with your company, ReCorp. Do you want to talk about that a little? Yeah, I'm happy to. One of the big things that I think a lot of people don't understand and don't value is the difficulty of actually building up the entrepreneurial skill set, the difficulty of actually sticking with your idea through difficult financial times, through shifting markets. So we started a company called ReCorp four years ago, myself and one partner named Frank. With the premise that we could bring in people with entrepreneurial expertise, people who demonstrated entrepreneurial expertise by building companies in the past, bring them into corporations as management consultants. So um, rather than charging big dollars, McKinsey style or BCG style, we could harness this entrepreneurial skill set and bring it into corporate projects. Um, and, and we ultimately were successful in doing that. So we worked with, I believe, 10 different large corporations and with a range of different styles and types of projects. But in every case, we were bringing in entrepreneurial talent to help the corporation solve a problem or build a new product. And as we've evolved, we were fortunate enough to set aside a little extra cash. One of the things that we did once we started making money was say, at least for now, we're gonna fix our salary so that um, we know we can rely on a consistent salary. And if our company makes more than what we're being paid, we'll set that aside and we can do something with that money in the future. More recently, starting in 2017, we started as our entrepreneurs who were our consultants started to leave and start their next venture, we started writing the first checks into their companies. And so we ultimately were able to come full circle and actually start investing in people who'd become our friends, people who we had seen in action 
Um, and so we knew that they would do a good job building their next company. And so we're writing small checks. Um, in one case, we wrote a, a $1,000 investment. In another case, $10,000, mm. um, up to 25000 And that's really inspiring. There are entrepreneurs who do that. And you're following in a great model because entrepreneurs appreciate sometimes how hard it is to get there. Once you've made it past a certain point, you want to try to play it forward and help other people as well. And this is how entrepreneurial ecosystems really start to evolve. And that's why Silicon Valley has had a few generations of really big um, successful companies. I'm going to get this wrong, but some of the earliest checks in Google, I believe were written by people who had done pretty well at HP. Um, oh, wow. I'd have to go that. back and check the history, but um, there were four angel investors in Google, and they had all sort of come out of the previous generation of tech in Silicon Valley. That's really interesting. So you're doing that here in New York. We're trying. <laughs> <laughs> Time will tell. Yeah. So from bartender to investor. <laughs> right. So what is the one real most important piece of advice you'd give an entrepreneur starting out? It's very difficult to know when to throw in the towel and when not to. I would say don't doubt yourself. Closing a company or saying that you have to move on and make additional money somewhere else, you shouldn't take that personally. It's very easy, especially when you're operating a business by yourself, to just sort of internalize and say, I must be a bad entrepreneur. This must be because of me. Um, there's so many other factors in entrepreneurship that cause a company to not work out market factors maybe you just didn't find the right co-founder there's so much more than just your own ability that um you shouldn't internalize it and, and put too much negativity on yourself and then always be learning you know there's always something that you can learn from an experience and try to regardless of what experience you have try to figure out how you can turn that into doing whatever you do better the next time and i i really want to just if i can just amplify what you said and really combine the two ideas, which is, you know, knowing when to throw in the towel and constantly learning. I mean, yeah. what people find, I think, is if they start the entrepreneurial journey, even if it doesn't work out, they've learned tremendous amount, yeah. right? They've learned about business, but they've also learned about their self. They've learned about their strengths and their weaknesses. And maybe they've learned that entrepreneurism isn't for them or, or they've learned that this is how I'm going to spend the rest of my life and I'm going to keep plugging away at it. I think one of the sins is that you have a passion, you have an idea, but you never try it, right? Absolutely. And yeah. so they say, we'll finish our lives regretting the things that we didn't do. Yep. And so maybe yeah. you can hedge your bets a little bit and have a day job or something. But Having an idea and not trying to do at least a simple test of it is like running a race without crossing the start line. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you psych yourself out so much that you never even start running the race. There's, there's so much that you can do if you have an idea to figure out what's the simplest way that you can test whether this is a good idea or not. Can you, can you spend less than 10 hours proving to yourself that this is a bad idea? And if you can, and you prove it's not a good idea, then you haven't wasted the next two years thinking right. about how you could build it. And I think that that ruthlessness about trying to look at things in a very practical way and, and factual light yep. is also a skill that... It is. It's a discipline of, again, not taking it personally, right? So have an idea, figure out if it's a good one. If it's not, move on to the next idea. But don't sit on something without figuring out whether you want to invest in it or not. So how do you figure out if it's a good one? Do you do a focus group of people you don't know? Do you do a 
Facebook poll? What do you do? I mean, so I have the advantage of having done almost 70 interviews through Startup Grind now. I can tell you every single person that I've talked to who's been a successful founder of Kayak or PayPal or other big tech companies had a different method <laughs> to figure out whether they wanted to invest their time and energy into something. If you look at Paul English, who's the CTO and co-founder of Kayak, he worked at, at software development companies for you know, more than a decade before he took his very first entrepreneurial step. Whereas, you know, you could cite other examples, uh, Zach Sims from Codecademy, who I believe started the company when he was like 17 or 18 years old. And literally in a weekend, what they say at least, and I don't know the details, what they say is that they got 100,000 users in their first weekend. Wow. I'm not sure exactly how they did that. Well, but, I kind of believe yeah. that because we had these two high school kids on the show mm. a little bit ago. And when it came time for the contest, they blew it out of the water. They had thousands <laughs> of votes. Uh, another thing I'd say is uh, try don't spend too much time comparing yourself to other people, too. You really need to walk your own journey. You need to figure out if something's right for you. You know, And you have a complex calculus of whether you have a life partner, whether you have children, whether you have medical bills, credit card bills, or whether you can just sell your house and go have a $1,000 cost of living working in Vietnam somewhere and create an internet business. There's, there's so much calculus to whether you should or should not pursue an idea. I remember when Elizabeth and I started Gerhardt Law, we had an income cutoff that if we weren't going to be able to attract mm. enough clients by this date, mm -hmm. I was going to go back to my right. looking for a corporate job. Yep. And uh, fortunately, we hit that milestone, <laughs> and uh, we're here today to talk about it. Thanks so. to tech, thanks to the internet. So mm -hmm. people told us, ah, oh, you're a law firm, you don't want a website. We're like, well, yeah, we do. And <laughs> we, we wrote the copy for the homepage ourselves, and we had to put Patton in there like 25 times. <laughs> Remember the old days? Yeah. Back in, that was that's, 2006. That's often the way to do it. You can often save so much money by just saying, what can I do myself? And the first version of a product is usually like scotch tape and, <laughs> and spit. <laughs> yeah. We'll be back with Peter in just a minute. You're listening to Passage to Profit. And before we break, I wanted to just talk a little bit about how entrepreneurs can find us for Passage to Profit. That's my favorite thing about this show. Anyone can pitch. You don't have to be a superstar or know anyone. Just have a great idea or business. We hold pitch auditions in New York City, and if your pitch is right for us, you can go on the air. You don't have to be in New York City to audition, but you have to be here for the show because we only tape in New York. And it's all paid for by our sponsors. The only thing that we ask of the pitchers is that they promote the show on their social media. So what about the contest? Sure. After the pitches, you, our listeners, can Google Passage to Profit Show and find the page on GearHeartLaw.com and vote for your favorite pitch. You can vote for a week, but you only get to vote once. So get your friends to listen and vote. If they miss the show, they can listen to the podcast to hear how wonderful you were. Just tell them to remember the name by imagining walking down a long passageway with a big pot of gold at the end. Passage to Profit. And may your passage be short and your profit be huge. You're listening to WOR 710. What are entrepreneurs' most valuable assets? Their passion and ideas. We can't protect your passion, but we can protect your ideas. Trust Gearheart Law to protect your ideas with premier patent, trademark, and copyright services. There's never been a better time to start your own business. Contact us at GearheartLaw.com. At Gearheart Law, we have years of experience protecting entrepreneurs' ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, 
Contact the experts at Gearheart Law, www.gearheartlaw.com. Don't let the wrong protection strategy ruin your business. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection and are licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Contact Gearheart Law on the web at G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. Together, we can change the world. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now back to Passage to Profit. Once again, Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. Welcome back to the pitch portion of our show. Each contestant will have a total of eight minutes to make their pitch. The first two minutes, they'll fly solo, and for that time, describe their project and put it in the best possible light. The remaining time is for the Inquisition, where they'll be challenged by Richard, Elizabeth, and Peter to describe their project in greater detail and convince the audience that their project is the best. At the end of the program, our listeners will be directed to the Passage to Profit page on the Gearheart Law website, where our listeners can vote for the pitch they like the best. So our first pitch contestant is Monica Elling, and she is going to be talking about one of my favorite things, wine. (laughs) Welcome, Monica. Thanks so much for having me. I've been around the world of wine for some time, and I've recognized that today consumers are facing an abundance of product in the marketplace, and it's unbelievably confusing. Uh, There are ratings, there are comments about wines, uh, but most consumers really don't have an intuitive way to look at what they should be choosing. And so they're making sometimes less than good choices. And I've been studying how we in the industry have shortcuts to understand this broad sector because uh, the fun thing about, or the terrifying thing about wine is that there is something new every single day. Just uh, when you've uh, determined that you really knew where a particular wine came from, some obscure country is now producing it. So there are challenges all around. I wanted to create an intuitive system and I called it Wine123, as basic as it gets. And I looked at how consumers uh, really experience wine. And what we do and what people on the professional side do is also just uh, when you're tasting, you think about how that feels in your mouth, how the wine tastes in your mouth. And uh, the barometer that we professionals use is the weight of wine. Is it light? Is it medium? Is it heavy? So I called it Wine123 and uh, determined the system of weight of wine, the wow factor, uh, because what you tend to experience over time is that as you start to taste wine consciously with the system in mind, you start assigning whether you're tasting a light-bodied wine, a medium, or a heavy-bodied wine, and how you enjoy it or not. When you start to see that you really love everything that's heavyweight, that becomes super fun because now you can go beyond your usual choices and look for other wines that are also heavy bodied and heavy weighted. So that's uh, Wine123 and my book is available now on Amazon. Sounds great. (laughs) And I have read it. (laughs) I downloaded it and read it on my Kindle. I learned a lot and I've been drinking wine for few years now. (laughs) And I really learned a lot from your book. And it was in very plain, easy to understand language. So one of the things I paid attention to, uh, we're all very busy, nobody has time. This is everything you need to know about wine in 90 minutes, more or less. 
mainly less, uh, because once you've read the book, every chapter has bullet points and a summary. So you never have to read the whole thing again. You can just go back to the topic at hand and uh, start to pull out the, the key details that you want. Uh, one of the things I also pointed out is uh, the price of wine and why a wine costs what it does. Um, and why there is this conversation, all right, well, if it's a $50 or $500 wine, is that really better than that $10 wine? The answer is yes, it pretty much is. But um, there are reasons why the pricing for a certain level of wine shoots up. And a lot of that has to do with what's in, I believe, chapter one, <laughs> which so is... So buy the book to find out. Buy the book to find out. <laughs> and um, I, I think you will find that it's really interesting and logical to now get a grasp of what the industry is doing with its pricing and why you're paying stupid amounts of money in one place <laughs> and why you're getting a bargain somewhere else. So really, could you explain a little bit more about what is the difference between a cheap wine and an expensive wine? Much of what happens with wine happens, uh, as any great winemaker will tell you, it happens in the vineyard. So vineyard cultivation of how they plant and how they uh, treat the wines and the grapes, uh, it's it starts adding up. So it includes people power. It includes many other elements. Certainly the use of oak plays into it. A French oak barrel is approximately 1300 dollars, uh, maybe more in euros, and uh, American barrels are a little bit less than that. But barrel usage, particularly with red wines, because that's where you're getting most of that, uh, hikes up the price real fast. Can you, so I'm not a big wine drinker. Why should I start? Why should I get? <laughs> don't start. <laughs> Are you There's kidding? two answers for that question. <laughs> Unless you have don't thousands start of dollars. Or you don't know what you're missing. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Are you kidding? <laughs> uh, wine is culture. Wine is is an experience. It's something to be shared. It's uh, more than just uh, picking a bottle and having a glass. It it is a shared experience in most cases in Europe as a, a, part of a European family where I grew up, um, it was always on the table from the time I was a small child. So we never had wine without food or food without wine. And it was a communal experience. And I think from that perspective alone, it is something you can talk about, you can share, and everyone will have a different experience sitting at the table with the same wine, but experiencing it differently. It's much like art. When you go to a museum, and you look at different artwork, people will be staring at the same thing, having completely different experiences. It's really fun. Yeah, I never really have been able to figure out, like, the hint of vanilla, taste of oak, tobacco. Lead pencil. Leather. How do you put leather in there? That's <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is that something, can you develop that palate over time? Absolutely. So typically uh, what happens, and this is what the wine business loves about an entry-level consumer, they know you're going up. So you start at one point, typically somewhere around college or sub-college age, and sipping at your parents' table or the box wines at uh, some better college parties. <laughs> and having that uh, typically fruit-forward, uh, very sweet product, uh, it's, it's fine. And it's a starting point. I, I believe mine was, uh, in college, the one I was exposed to was something 
called Rio Needy at the time. I remember that. <laughs> I remember. Yeah. Well, where, where our son went to school at Virginia Tech, yeah. they had a class on wine. Exactly. Wine tasting. Right. So we're like, we're and not paying for credit that. credit for that and we pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Smart man. Yeah. But uh, the experience as you're, as you're tasting more product, as you're tasting more wines, uh, your palate will improve. And the wine that really appealed to you two years ago is something you're no longer going to be looking at. So, so you naturally gravitate upwards. So the millennial generation today that has grown up with wine just as much as they've grown up with mobile phones is going to have a very different growth experience in wine than the boomers who had much, much less selection. So when they were drinking jug wines and whatever, they progressed from a different point than the consumer targets of today. That's really fascinating. Really different generations and how they experience wine will have an influence on their purchasing patterns later. Do you have a chapter on wine labels? Because that's typically how I make my selections now. (laughs) If it looks like it's from old France or old England or something, I buy it. If it looks like it's from somewhere else, I might not, right? See, this goes back to the artwork situation. Uh, As I said, uh, consumers experience the same product in a different way, in their own particular way. And uh, while I do touch on packaging and labels uh, in the book throughout the different chapters, whether it's Bordeaux or Burgundy uh, or New World versus Old World, um, the, the key element is that you're comfortable with whatever experience you want to have. And when you start to taste the wine, it still goes back. Do you enjoy the taste of that particular wine? Is it light, medium, heavy? And then you can explore more in the category that you choose. Yeah, and it really is a personal taste because my girlfriend loves Chardonnay. I can't stand it. It just depends, though, because in your case, too, there are all sorts of old world, new world Chardonnays. You should try different just to have more (laughs) more context. So on that note, we have to wrap this up. I think I'm going to go buy a new Chardonnay. (laughs) So you've been listening. Did you bring any wine for us? So (laughs) next time. So the book is Wine123. Is there a website or anything? Or we just go to Amazon? You can buy it on Amazon and Kindle or, or softcover, and you can go to winewith.me and buy it directly from us. Okay. Monica Elling with Wine123. You're listening to Passage to Profit on WOR 710, the voice of New York. Hi, I'm Lisa Askley, the inventress, founder, CEO, and president of Inventing A to Z. I've been inventing products for over 38 years. Hundreds of products later and dozens of patents. I help people develop products and put them on the market from concept to fruition. I bring them to some of the top shopping networks in the world. QVC, HSN, Evine Live, and retail stores. Have you ever said to yourself, someone should invent that thing? Well, I say, why not make it you? If you want to know how to develop a product from concept to fruition the right way, contact me. Lisa Askeles, the inventress. Go to inventingatoz.com, inventingatoz.com. Email me, lisa at inventingatoz.com. Treat yourself to a day chock full of networking, education, music, shopping, and fun. Go to my website, inventingatoz.com. 
Passage to Profit continues with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. Welcome back, entrepreneurs. We're now at the second pitch portion of our pitching, and our second contestant <laughs> is uh, Vivek Kumar from Pull Up Technologies. Vivek, you have two minutes. Go. Parking is a nightmare in crowded cities. Pull Up aims to change the way we park. Uh, we call ourselves the Uber of parking. It's a simple application where you open up the app and you see all the parking spots in any area that you're looking for. If you're leaving your spot, you get to your car, you put in how much you want to sell your spot for and how long you're willing to wait, post it, and it goes up on the network. And just like that, we coordinate the parking spaces as well as the people looking for parking. Now, this can be used pretty much anywhere where GPS exists, so anywhere in the U.S., uh, we think that mostly customers are going to come from density areas, and we plan to do our initial marketing push in the downtown Manhattan area where we are right now. That sounds great. Have you thought about kind of how people are going to react to this idea? I mean, if you're yeah. the, giving away the parking spot you're and that's selling it, that's one thing. But if you've been driving around New York for 30 minutes looking for one and you see somebody else give it up. Right. You know, it, it goes back to a problem that I used to have uh, myself. I used to drive home every day and circle around for a good 30 to 45 minutes, and there'd be that guy who'd sell his spot or give his spot to his buddy, and they'd all be parking or, uh, you know, just pile apart to each other, and it's, it's a nightmare. Uh, essentially, what Pull Up is trying to do is streamline that process. Now, I'm, I'm sure people are going to have issues, and we're going to have a variety of different issues, and hopefully we don't lose too much money in these initial <laughs> stages. But as, uh, as your guests would know, uh, I think uh, getting the initial minimum viable product out there and then seeing from there how we can improve, optimize, and tweak the overall product uh, is, uh, is what we're trying to do right now. Um, I think one of the challenges we've had, uh, or one of the challenges that we will have since we just got our apps onto the app stores, the respective app stores, is getting that huge customer base. So, um, Vivek, obviously, until we have self-driving cars, all of these cars will need drivers. So can you just tell us how this works? Let's say that you have 100 cars all moving within one hour. How do you navigate that? We have two different classes or types of users. We, you have the arriving user and the departing user. Um, so just like any parking app or any app, really, you open it up uh, and you see all the different parking spots in any particular area. There's a search bar. So say you're going to Times Square, you put in Times Square and you see all the spots in that area. Let's say, for example, you're actually leaving your spot. You've got a couple of minutes to spare. You put in how many minutes you have to spare and for how much you want to sell that spot. And it goes up on, on, onto this uh, network, onto the uh, dashboard page of the app. So it's a really easy to use, simple interface. And we think that the market regulates itself. Not to get too technical, but you open up the app and you see that the folks around you have posted their spots for two, three, four dollars kind of makes sense to post your spot for $2 to undercut the market, unless you've got that really sweet spot right next to where you want to be <laughs> and post that for $8. So we really think that the demand will determine the market, not just by Times Square, not just by Madison Square Garden, but maybe even near the ball game. You know, the next time you go into a Jets game, that guy who has a house or a garage right there, you know, sell for a couple of bucks for the game. Is there anything about the size of the car? So we have an SUV and a small sedan. Yeah. So the SUV is not going to get in the sedan spot. No, especially in New York City, right? Um, so what we have tried to engineer right now uh, is 
every user, every driver puts in uh, some basic information, name, age, credit card, things like that. Uh, but we also ask them for their car information. So, And we kind of show you the car that you're going to rendezvous with uh, to give you an idea of whether you'd fill, fit into that spot or not. In future iterations of this app, who knows, uh, we might want to go the motorcycle route, the scooter route, and, and enhance this overall offering, kind of like what Uber's doing uh, with different products. Definitely not at that scale, uh, just as yet at least. Uh, but you know, that's definitely one of the things that we are concerned about as well and looking into. Right now, it's only cars. We're not doing any other trucks or anything like that, but, but SUVs are on there. Well. You're, are you pulling in um, the city regulations, so street sweeping, um, like whether it's a metered spot or right, not, right, all right. that? That's actually a, a great point, and that kind of touches on our competition. So nobody really does what we're trying to do, which is sell space, right? A space for time, really, and that's the intellectual property that we're basing this on. A lot of the other apps like SpotPog, Monkey Parking, not to advertise competition, they're like <laughs> yellow pages for parking. You have to say the name of your company again. <laughs> but Pull Up, Pull Up, on the other hand, is not just yellow pages. It's not just a, a listing of existing spots or decks. I mean, you can Google that. It's probably easier to just to Google, go through Google Maps. What we do is we allow users to post their own spots. So it's person-to-person uh, democratization of parking. Now, nobody else does it the way that we do in, in the sense, you know, putting in a waiting time and things like that. And nobody really touches the street parking space. Now, we're not paying for parking. Park Mobile does a great job of that. They, you know, a lot of your street spots you can pay with an app nowadays. We're not, we don't know about the meter. We don't know about city regulations. All we're doing is facilitating the exchange of space. And the, and the biggest benefit is that when you leave that spot, Hey, if it's prime time, if it, if it's rush hour, you might even make some money off of parking in New York City. Imagine that. Wow. <laughs> so I'm I, I think the mechanics of what you're describing work out really well, but let's talk about mindshare meaning um, people have a limited amount of time, especially New Yorkers are extremely busy. How do you actually get what you're doing in people's heads so that they remember to open your app? Right. So I think one of the biggest challenges that's out there is getting both the Uber drivers and the Uber passengers, getting both the people who are looking for spots and the people who are selling their spots. You know, uh, Uber, for example, you know, gr phenomenal company, goes without saying. What they did initially was they paid drivers to drive around and pick up passengers. They artificially created that market. Now, what we could do, uh, what pull-up could do is parking parking spots and start selling spots and maybe have one of those mm. guys who has those swinging signs by the Hudson uh, who say, oh, you're looking <laughs> Park for parking? Here. Exactly. <laughs> so the sky's the limit we're, and we're really interested in working with a variety of different media and marketing partners and, and hopefully with some outreach we can get the right partners to push this forward mm -hmm. uh, because we've got a great story about uh, a, a team of great student entrepreneurs uh, that I worked with at the New Jersey Institute of Technology to develop this product uh, and these are great kids who graduated, incorporated this company in 2017, and we've done great things over the past year and a half. That's what? fantastic. Have you had a chance to test the product yet? So actually, we have uh, just put the Android app into the Play Store. We've finished up our testing, bugs, things like that. And what we're trying to do right now is uh, do some on-the-ground testing and on-the-ground marketing, trying to figure out what marketing strategy works best in terms of customer acquisition. There's the social media marketing, targeted marketing, looking at downtown, midtown, all over the place. But maybe end of the day, it's just go down there, 
get face to face and say, hey, you looking for parking? Here. Try this. <laughs> yeah, try this. Because <laughs> otherwise, I'd circle around for another 30 or 45 minutes. Is this a problem unique to New York City, or do you think this scales? And how far do you think this so, scales? So, I, so before I lived in New York City, I lived in Houston, and before that in Boston, and Atlanta, and Chicago. There's a variety of different parking situations that this could work in. It would be a terrible app for majority of Houston. It's a wide open city. There's ample parking. But in downtown, right by the CBD, for all those guys who come in every day and leave every day, kind of like pretty much anywhere in, in New York City or any of the boroughs, really, there's a constant traffic of people in and out. And where there is a high density of parkers, where there are people just circling around, getting angry, just creating a mess looking for parking, that's where we, we think that there's an opportunity. And instead of a parking deck, which is thirty to forty-five dollars per night, four fifty to seven fifty per month, we offer a simple, elegant solution. Well, that's really great, Vivek, and thank you for that, and thank you for appearing on Passage to Profit. Where can our listeners find out more about your project? So, if you would like to learn more about PullUp, you can go to PullUp.io. P-U-L-L-U-P.io. There's access to both the Android as well as uh, iPhone apps on there. There are links to that. Thanks a lot. And you're listening to Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gerhart and our special guest, Peter Crisdale on WOR 710, the voice of New York. There's never been a better time to start your own business. The opportunities are infinite and only limited by your imagination and enthusiasm. At Gearheart Law, we believe the most successful companies all have one thing in common. They start with a solid foundation first. Gearheart Law has years of experience protecting entrepreneurs, ideas, and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at www.gearheartlaw.com. Our professionals will create a custom strategy designed to fit your needs and your budget. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection, licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Visit gearheartlaw.com. Together, we can change the world. Visit G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. This ad has been read by a non Attorney spokesperson. Now back to Passage to Profit. Once again, Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. And our special guest, Peter Crisdale. And now we have our third pitch. And I'll tell you, this is a doozy. We have somebody here who's holding a big yellow snake that's alive and has a little iguana. Is that an iguana? No, he's a, a panther chameleon from Madagascar. It's oh. an endangered species. <laughs> so just and be glad you're is... at home tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so this is. Eric, the Reptile Guy calendar. Yeah, so I'm excited to share with you that over the last 12 years, I've had this snake on my neck. I've known her for 12 years. She was a rescue animal. Um, I just recently acquired JJ. And um, as a result of all the work we've done, we worked with thousands of kids over the last 12 years, teaching them about the importance of connecting to animals and uh, nature. And the thing is, is that I realized that every show I would do after I was done, thousands of kids would want to have a pet. I want to be like Eric. I want a snake. I want a frog. I want a <laughs> chameleon. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm getting calls like years after the parent says, well, you know, the kids don't want the pet anymore. Or we just had a baby, so we can't keep the snake or whatever. So, you know, these animals are displaced. And so I do a lot of rescue. And so um, I was thinking about, well, how could we still make it fun for the kids that they can still have an experience 
um, similar to what I had when I was a child because I was not always allowed to have reptiles. So <laughs> <laughs> I was never allowed. Really? I used to sneak them into the house all the time. That would have been a in. hard sell to my mother, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I drove my parents crazy. But um, so finally... Um, I was not able to keep animals in my home anymore. So when I moved, I was able to, but I was thinking, I was like, wow, like it was such a passion for me to be able to connect to the animals. So I decided, it's like, well, you know, why don't we come up with a toy or something that kids can can learn and read and, and have a, a fuller experience and get them outside learning about nature. So I came up with a, an idea for a biodegradable 3D printed pet. Um, and uh, they call it 3dpets.net. And uh, kids, uh, I've tested them out on a few kids, and they absolutely love them. Uh, they change color. Uh, they're biodegradable. Some glow in the dark, some don't. And they have an ebook attached to it. So it really speaks to you know children uh, learning more about science and uh, and connecting to to nature and getting outside because many kids are on their devices. And so with this QR reader here, they can download a book. And the book is actually a video book, so it's a little bit of reading. Uh, it's an automatic page turner. And they get to learn about the, the creatures at the same time from adventures that I've had traveling around the world over the past years. And, you know, we're developing more adventures as we go along for each creature. Um, however, it's been absolutely wonderful experience for me to be able to give back in this way where the animals, um, which many are endangered, are not suffering anymore. And the kids are actually having an experience that is more integrated into to living a full life and respecting nature. I think that's wonderful. And I can see the toy, but I know our listeners can't. But it's a little, it looks kind of rubbery, but it's... Yeah, it, and it attaches to your pen. It attaches to a pen and it has a tail. And on the tail is hooked on the QR tag. So there's a little tag hanging off the tail. Mm -hmm. And that's what you put your phone on to get the book. So what are they made out of? They're made of, a, it's PLA, it's a, a biodegradable, it's a corn base. The New Pulse University has a, a, a lab, they have a 3D printing state-of-the-art lab, and they were able to help design the toys for me. And so it's, it's an you know, American-made, it's made right here, um, right up the block from me, so it's really nice. It's biodegradable over 10 years, so plastic is a huge problem. Everywhere, everything's plastic toys. I've had G.I. Joe toys and a dinosaur in my car window since I was six. I'm 41 now. <laughs> <laughs> the same toy. And they're not going anywhere. <laughs> changed. So, so what is the thing with reptiles? I mean, how did you, why not how did you mammals or birds? Yeah. or? Uh, I love reptiles. Since I was six, I was actually, I was in special ed when I was, when I was nine. But when I was six, um, I went to a daycare center, discovered a bullfrog, and I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. And like the kind of dinosaur thing. But then when I was nine, um, I was in special ed, and they, they, they're like, what are we going to do with this kid? You know, he keeps falling out of his chair, staring outside and looking at birds and whatever, and he's not paying attention. So my counselor actually gave me a National Geographic. It was 1986, National Geographic, and it had a whole article about turtles. I'm like, oh my God, this is so cool. And it had like a whole, like literally like a... Um, a, a, a diorama of the turtle and I was just fascinated by it and I read this over and over again in fact I still have the magazine no cover anymore but anyway that's what started it and then I ended up getting out of special ed because of that they saw my interest in the animals and there's some connection that you know you have with experiencing animals in nature or just walking outside in nature that that kind of just brings you to to life it really changes your energy and it's what it did for me and interesting that that fifth grade science project was about turtles, of course. Then my mom got me a turtle for my birthday. Oh. And she's like, well, I really don't like these creatures <laughs> in my house, but I guess we'll have them anyway. Since but for my son. <laughs> <laughs> so it actually worked. And, and I did some research recently 
um, about uh, children connecting to nature and how um, they had done a study with 350 children in New Mexico about them being interested in life science after they've experienced reading a book about an animal or seeing it in person. But then, you know, having an outlet to be able to be like, well, if your parents don't let you have it, you know, you can have this 3D pet that glows in the dark or, you know, like that. So it makes it really, you know, fun for them. So you do shows as well, right? I do live live shows with rescue animals now mostly and uh, to bring the awareness to the creatures. But these creatures are creatures I've had for many, many years. So who did you bring with you to the studio today? Uh, Tell us a little bit about your friends. <laughs> well, Twinkie was a rescue 12 years ago. Twinkie was about a foot long when I got him. Is that a python? python? Yeah, right? he's a Burmese okay. python, illegal in New York State to have as a pet. Although some people sneak them in and, you know, and, and you know, have them. And they, they get too big and no, they our producer is, uh, is giving me this look like. <laughs> we're, we're recording in an undisclosed location. <laughs> but um, so this is Twinkie. And then um, we have JJ. So Twinkie was a rescue. He was emaciated when I got him. I actually had to feed him for a year, force feed him olive oil. You know, you ever go to like those those Italian places where they have the olive oil, you dip it in the, the bread and the olive oil and the, and, the, and the spice. So I had to dip dead my into olive oil for for a year and force feed him because I, I he like olive eat. oil with my dead rodents too. <laughs> so, but What's, there he is. How, how long is he now? Um, he's a little over nine feet. Yeah, nine feet long. Oh. Yeah, so he's 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 great. And then, um, but he's doing fantastic now. He eats, and you know, he's an animal that I'm keeping forever now. So that's that. And then, um, I have a JJ here who. Mm, I don't even know if I should share this story, but I will. <laughs> so, um, so this is a, a law of attraction story. So I, I adopted a chameleon out to a friend um, some time ago, and um, and uh, she had him for about a year. And um, then I said, I wanted to borrow this chameleon to do a program. And so I was on my way to go get some food for some of our animals. And then I was thinking about chameleons. And when I arrived to the pet store, there was a chameleon, JJ, six months old in the cage. And I'm like, well, you know, there's a big problem with with animal trafficking and things like that. So I was like, you know what? I cannot, you know, participate in that. And I told the lady at the store and then. I kind of contradicted myself when I put my hand in front of the cage and he reached out for me and he's like, Creepy. Oh, <laughs> like oh. and then the funny thing was I didn't have the money for him. So I was like, well, I can't get him now. So I asked the lady, can I put him on layaway? She's like, no, you can't put him on layaway. It's a chameleon. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then as I'm leaving, as I'm driving away, <laughs> some lady pulls next to me. And she goes, excuse me, do you do animal shows? I'm like, yeah, I do. And she's like, well, are you free in this day? I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, well, well, how much is it? And I gave her the price and she's like, well, I was like, well, you know, we don't normally do this, but you know, you think you could leave a deposit if you you know a 50 percent deposit <laughs> and she said sure and then she said meet me in front of target and i'll pay you and then that was it and then and then i i went back and i got jj and and um but the thing is is that they really are endangered and teaching about them and having the live animal in front of children to show them like this animal you know it's, it's endangered don't take them out of the wild leave them where you found them this is a captive born animal um, so it's better. Um, however, it's really important to read about them before they get them. And then this uh, product, 3dpets.net, allows the children the opportunity to read and, and learn. And, and uh, you know, this has been fascinating. We're getting to the end of our time. So you're selling the little pets on 3dpets.net. Yes, 3dpets.net. What mm -hmm. if I wanted to book a show with you? How would I do that? Oh, you go to adventureshow.com. It's adventures with an E. So E-D-V-E-N-T-U-R-E show.com. 
Oh, adventure. Yes, adventure. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and it's funny, but we do distance learning. So when I'm in Madagascar, we actually Skype in our children from Madagascar because the the uh, a portion of the proceeds from the sale of the toys, 100% of the profits go to build uh, schools for children worldwide that cannot go to school and connect them to nature. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much, Eric. It's a pleasure. <laughs> thank you for thank bringing you. your pets with you. You're welcome. <laughs> You're listening to... Passage to Profit on WOR 710 with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart and our special guest, Peter Crisdale. What are entrepreneurs' most valuable assets? Their passion and ideas. We can't protect your passion, but we can protect your ideas. Trust Gearhart Law to protect your ideas with premier patent, trademark, and copyright services. There's never been a better time to start your own business. Contact us at GearhartLaw.com. At Gearhart Law, we have years of experience protecting entrepreneurs' ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at Gearheart Law, www.gearheartlaw.com. Don't let the wrong protection strategy ruin your business. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection and are licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Contact Gearheart Law on the web at G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. Together, we can change the world. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now more with Richard and Elizabeth. Passage to Profit. Well, we've come to the end of our presentations this evening, and I think saying they were great was like an understatement. This is the most fun I've had in a long time. The pitches tonight were truly amazing. And remember, everyone, to go to Passage to Profit page at GearheartLaw.com, spelled G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W, and vote for your favorite project. So to summarize, we had Monica Elling with Wine123, which explains a lot about wine. Next, Vivek Kumar pitched Pull Up, an app to trade parking spaces in urban areas and get paid for it. And finally, Eric the Reptile Guy, who brings his reptiles everywhere and puts on shows and sells little biodegradable toys of them. I may be pushing the envelope a little bit here, but uh, no, is this the first time that you've had a snake in the recording studio? He's nodding his head. <laughs> yes. <yet>. Okay. <laughs> now, listeners, Google Passage to Profit and make your choice. Remember, you can only vote once, and you have until next Sunday at 8 p.m. to vote. This evening's pitch contestants will receive a Passage to Profit t-shirt. And the best overall vote getter for the month will receive an Amazon gift card. Thanks to everyone who participated today, including the animals. I love hearing the pitches each week, and I'm not going to vote because I can never pick a favorite. But we feel like you guys are showing us the future, right? And that's what we love about being in the entrepreneurial space. The pitches were wonderful, and I want to say thanks again to our guest, Peter Crisdale, who took us over the top in so many ways. Do you have any final words for us, Peter? If you want to know what I'm working on specifically, go to peterchrisdale.com. I'd be happy to chat with you. We would like to thank you and all of our pitchers and our producer, Noah Fleischman, and our sound engineer, Rob Barretts, who really makes this sound good on the radio, and our media maven, Kenya Gibson, and the whole iHeart team. Don't forget to join us next week for another excellent speaker and another round of pitches. You never know what you're going to get on this show. And you can start thinking about what your pitch will be. And don't forget to like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This is Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart on iHeart with Passage to Profit, W-O-R-7-10, the voice of New York. <laughs> <laughs>